Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. You know, I just realized I got to do the whole hangover today by myself. It's an outrage. Just outrageous. Uh, Yeah, Brett Winterbull is off today. I'm filling in uh, for the first hour of his program. And then Brett Jensen will be picking it up after that. Uh, So the whole Friday hangover minus Brett Winterbull and only me. So stick around for that. If you're listening on the podcast, get Brett Winterbull's podcast as well. Get them all. Uh, by the way, if you are listening on the podcast platform, Stitcher is going away. So if you use Stitcher as a podcast platform, it is going away. Sirius XM bought it a couple of years ago, I want to say. And uh, now they're shutting it down or they're folding it into, let's say, they're folding it into uh, their existing subscription service at Sirius XM. Surely you can't be serious. Serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Right. So, got to find a new podcast platform. I don't want to say that we had anything to do with a guy escaping charges out in California. But, I mean, we did mention this story and then he did not get charged. So, I feel like it's a direct connection. I'm talking about the Sikh. The guy at the 7-Eleven. Out in California, somebody shot video of him and his co-worker that were preventing an attempted robbery. And, like, the co-worker goes over and grabs the guy. So it starts off, the video starts off where you see this guy, and he's behind the counter. That's what looked weird to me at first. I thought, that's a really small convenience store. But then I learned later on that the robber had gone behind the counter. And so that's why he and, he, and he has like this rolling 30 plus gallon garbage can with lined with a, you know, a black plastic bag. And he's just wheeling it over behind the counter. And he's just sweeping all of like the cigarette products, like everything that is like behind the counter at a 7-Eleven. And he's just sweeping it all into the garbage can. And he's telling the guys that work there that are telling him to stop. And he's saying, you can't do anything to stop me. You're, you you can't do anything because it's California. And yeah, like one would one would think that if you are shoplifting, stealing in California, that nothing will happen to you because mostly nothing does, right? You're allowed to steal a whole bunch of merchandise and nobody does anything. In fact, some, uh, not just the jurisdictions with the DAs, Thank you, George Soros, that are, you know, not prosecuting these crimes because equity, right? So because of slavery or something, we're not going to prosecute any shoplifters now for some reason, but whatever. Like, that's one reason. And then the other is that you've got companies that have policies that tell their employees, do not stop somebody. And I'm sure it's some corporate lawyers who are telling all of the uh, employees, you know, don't get in the way because if you do and something happens, then we can be sued. So just let them steal all the merch. 
Yeah, and then they closed the store, and now the employees are out of jobs. This is what happens when you have a breakdown in law. Right? The civil society ceases to function. So these two employees at a 7-Eleven, um, they're like, you know what? No. No, we're not going to let you steal all of this stuff. And one of the guys goes over and grapples with the robber, gets him to the ground, and in the process, as he's doing so, another employee pulls out what appears to be a uh, wooden broomstick or something, like a, a long pole, and he just starts just whacking away at the robber's butt and legs because that's what's exposed because the other guy's got him. He's, like, wrapping him up, you know, with the torso area, trying to keep his arms immobilized so he can't fight back. And as they're wrestling around, the other employees just whack, whack, whack. He's just going to town on him. And the video goes viral. And the initial response from law enforcement was, we are investigating these actions by the employees. Well, now the mayor of Stockton, California, which is where this store was or is, the mayor has come out and said that, The employees, quote, are not and never have been suspects. During the shocking attempted robbery, a suspected homeless man jumped behind the convenience store's counter and tried to empty shelves into a trash can. One employee saw the man, took him down to the ground, while another began beating the attempted robber with a stick. Following the takedown, police released a statement saying that they were investigating the employees, who the mayor, uh, Kevin Lincoln, a Republican, The mayor um, says that following the takedown, police released the statement. The the mayor says they they are no longer uh, in question. Any investigation going forward is to hold accountable the individual who threatened and attempted to rob the store clerks, he said on Twitter. Mayor Lincoln said that while the events are still under investigation by Stockton police, the DA's office has assured him that the clerks are not the focus. He went on to criticize the controversial California law, Proposition 47, which decreased many previous felonies to misdemeanors. Mayor Lincoln wrote that the law impacts businesses experiencing an uptick in shoplifting and decreases law enforcement's ability to hold accountable the crooks. By the way, there was another part of this story that was not originally told. All we saw was the uh, the Sikhs. Well, one of you know, one was obviously a Sikh. But I guess they both were. But one of them was wearing, I don't know, well, I don't remember the other guy. I don't remember if he was wearing, I don't remember what they call them, but the big turban-looking hats. I forget what the name of it is, because, like, they keep all their hair up in there. Anyway, uh, so that was the initial video, and everybody was, like, either celebrating the guy with the stick, or they were like, oh, how dare he do that? You know, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. This homeless man was just in there, you know, trying to get some equity, whatever. The robber had robbed these guys three times in two days. He had targeted the store. Tyrone Frazier is his name. He appeared in court. He did not enter a plea for six charges. He is facing two counts of robbery, attempted robbery, criminal threats, commercial burglary, and vandalism which I didn't even know those were crimes anymore in California, but okay, they're on the books. One of the charges is in connection with the attempted robbery caught on video. 
But there were previous incidents. The first time he came in there, he threatened to shoot them. He claimed to have a gun. The second time he comes in, like within, I don't know, I think it's like 16 hours, he comes back and he kind of, he says he has a gun and it's kind of like doing the, you know, hand in the pocket kind of thing. But he never shows a weapon. And I suspect that's when he, so when he comes back the the second day, a couple hours later with the trash can and he, he claims, you know, I'm going to clear you all out. You can't do anything about it. I suspect this is where the Sikhs realized this guy doesn't have a gun, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, he doesn't have a gun. And so he brought nothing to a stick fight. That's what, that's what they thought. And so they, they took advantage of the situation, as they should. I said it the other day when I was talking about this story. Property was purchased with currency. And currency is what we use to delineate value. And that value is determined by your time, your effort, right? your work, your skills, And so when you trade your time for a paycheck to do a job for somebody and they're going to pay you money, you are sacrificing a part of your life. That's the point of currency. It's to create some sort of universal tender, some value. I said tender, not tinder. Tender. Right? Some ability for us to mark the value of a discrete amount of time of your life. Okay, you're going to give eight hours a day of your, a third of your daily life You're going to trade to help somebody else's business, to do some work, and they're going to give you some money for that. And then you're going to have that money to then trade other people who have produced things that they have traded portions of their life for. So when I come and steal your stuff that you purchased with currency that you traded units of your life for, yeah, that's personal. That's personal. So people who are like, oh, it's just property is the most infuriating thing. During the the riots, sorry, the mostly peaceful but sometimes fiery summer of love, um, then they're like, oh, it's just property. It's just property. Yeah, that property was purchased and managed and owned and stocked by people who were sacrificing portions of their life. Do not minimize it. All right, more on that in a minute. First, let me tell you, the Heritage Life Skills event was fantastic. Every year, Bill and Jan Sturette organized the event to help people get educated on how to be prepared for anything. The Sturettes own Carolina Readiness Supply, 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials you'll need for any kind of emergency. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies, because being prepared is just smart. The Heritage Life Skills event brings educated and vendors from all over to help people do just that. I was honored to be able to be a small part of it. And whether you're an experienced prepper, have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? You remember the uh, shooting in Nashville, Tennessee at that school? Remember that? You remember the, the shooter... Apparently wrote some sort of a manifesto. Remember that? The debate over whether the shooter's writings should be released is still going on. They're still fighting over this. This was the Covenant Elementary School in Nashville. Court battle has been back and forth for two months now. 
One of the lawyers told Fox 17 News uh, the case may not be resolved, though, for another three years. Three years. Nashville Police Chief John Drake says the shooter had a detailed map, drawings of the Covenant School, known entry points, as well as journals. Almost four months, well, see, that right there should tell us something. Honestly. The shooter kept journals. And remember, the shooter was a trans kid, or adult, I think, at this point. I forget. I forget how old the shooter was. But it was a a female, biological female, who said they were a male. And to me, this blows up the entire thing, because dudes don't keep journals like that. Like, what? Really? You're journaling? Come on. Anyway, the uh, four months later now, the writings have yet to be released, despite public records requests from several organizations which are now suing the Nashville government. Metro Police originally denied the open records request, citing an open criminal investigation. But the shooter is dead, and they have not identified any other people of interest. So the exception probably doesn't apply here. But uh, we're still investigating. There's lots of investigation still to occur. So we're not really sure when we'll ever be able to let you see any of these writings. The judge, and by the way, I'm not one of these people, like if they release the the manifesto, I'm not one of these people that's going to comb through the thing. I'm just, I'm not. I'll read, if somebody else does, I'll read a, a synopsis of what they read. If there's something there that is of interest, then I might go and read those portions. But I generally do not care to read the ramblings of insane people that commit these types of shootings. I don't care. I don't want to give them more uh, coverage. I don't want to, uh, you know, elevate or amplify their insanity because I do believe that these mass shootings are social contagion. I do believe that copycat ex- uh, 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 murders like this and crimes exist. It, it's very obvious to me. It's why I never say their names. I don't care what their names are. I don't. It doesn't matter to me who they were. All that matters to me is the victims. That's it. So the judge allowed the Covenant School, as well as the church and the parents, to intervene in this case And discuss why they feel the writings should not be released. So this is an interesting case. Which is why I'm talking about it. This is an interesting case because the the church doesn't own the writings. The school doesn't own the writings. The parents of the victims do not own the writings. Right? The writings were the shooters. Now the shooter is dead. And so ostensibly all of that would go to who? The parents, unless, of course, they were taken by the police. Now, are they public records? If they're part of the investigative process, do those case files then become public if the investigation is essentially over, which I think it is. I don't think that it's still open. I don't think there's a legitimate case to be made that the investigation is ongoing. A lot of the... uh, Families wrote notes to the judge asking him to keep it closed, keep all of it sealed, don't allow them to be um, publicized. And they're afraid that if they publicize the writings, that it could create a copycat effect. 
the shooter's parents, get this, transferred ownership of the writings to the Covenant victims' families in order to stop the release. They gave them to the the victims' families. That's what I say. This is an interesting case because it's talking about ownership of your your writings, your work product. It's one of the things. You write a letter to me, that's still your your writings, your words. So I'll be following that because I find it just it's an interesting legal point. Got an email regarding the Nashville shooter manifesto in the court case over that. Uh, in every question of what to do about releasing or not to release information is based on will there be an injured party by doing so? And if there's multiple parties with competing considerations, which party holds the trump card? In the Nashville shooter case, without knowing all the facts, it's difficult for us to determine who that is. Um, Chip says, Pete, if you haven't already, I suggest you accompany all reports on our roving bovine buddy with a few bars of Herb Alpert's The Lonely Bull. I don't know if I've ever heard that song. Chris. Can you try to find a song called The Lonely Bull by Herb Alpert? I don't know. We'll take a listen. We'll see what it is. Maybe play it as some bump music coming out of the the final break here. Um, Because I'll circle back, like Jen Psaki style, I will circle back to to some of the other messages that are in the mail sack here uh, and uh, get to those as well. Um, Regarding the Sikhs, that whipped that took us of the robber. Pete, maybe the clerks can defend themselves by claiming that they did not assault the shoplifter. They were merely taking disciplinary action against an uncooperative thief who had violated their rights. Uh, yeah, whatever works, really. Whatever works. Um, Lance points out, yes, Pete, you beat me to it. Looks like you're going to have to have an extended Friday hangover to do all by yourself. That's all right. I mean, look. We all have our crosses to bear, people, you know, and I, I, I will take this up. <laughs> all right, let me get to this other story here. This is from uh, Portlandia, where they apparently still have some trials, which is weird to me because I thought, like, they had just completely broken down as a society and there's no law at all anymore there. So that's, like, on the plus side, silver lining here is that they still actually do conduct some trials. Unfortunately... Uh, the trials don't really result in justice. So uh, the jury, tr- there was a jury trial, and it was uh, not a criminal trial. It was a civil trial, so it was a civil case. And in civil cases, you're either found to be liable or not liable, okay? And this was a trial based on a complaint brought by Andy No, N-G-O is his last name, Andy No. He's an investigative journalist. Andy No rose to prominence by going undercover and sharing videos of Antifa. And he'd been doing it for years. And then they figured out who he was because he lives in Portland. And they doxed him. And then they assaulted him repeatedly at various events and even one time at a gym. So he filed a lawsuit and sought a jury trial for damages. And he sued Rose City Antifa as well as its alleged affiliated members And the jury trial, the jury found both of the two defendants that were uh, first up, John Colin Hacker and Elizabeth Renee Richter, 
found them not liable in the civil case brought against them, which is weird because they basically admitted to like everything. No filed a complaint in Portland in 2020 claiming assault and other injuries over alleged acts of violence carried out by members of Antifa, which began in 2019. Defendants Hacker and Richter were accused by um, Andy No of assault, battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, uh, which was argued before a civil jury for more than a week at the county courthouse. The defendants, who allegedly work as Antifa's doxers, which means, you know, getting people's personal information and putting it out there for all to see. So then to uh, target and harass and intimidate and even assault the target. Uh, they had identified Andy No, and then that led to a series of physical beatings in 2021. They were found by the jury not liable. People, get out of these blue lawless hell holes now. Seriously. Katie Davis Court at the postmillennial.com reporting on the trial said during closing statements, the defense lawyer, Michelle Burroughs, told the jurors that not only does she self-identify as both a progressive and an anti-fascist, she declared, quote, I am Antifa. And instead of making herself, uh, uh, or sorry, and insisted uh, that she was going to be making an, uh, a T-shirt that said, I am Antifa. I don't know why she felt the need to tell that to the jury, but apparently it worked. They were convinced. She said she would wear it after the trial. Despite Antifa's significant recorded history of violence, she told the jury that Antifa's unfavorable reputation is not true. No. The organized militant group is, they're just activists fighting for social justice and civil rights. Uh, and, you know, she said resistance in this country has never been peaceful. See, so it's not, right, they're, they're not violent. They simply know that resistance has never been peaceful. See, totally different. So they're not violent, but yeah, kind of violent, you know. That's literally what she argued. And one, she did admit that the black clad people had physically beaten no. And she said, okay, yeah, those are terrorists, but those aren't Antifa. See, they're different. Antifa is an idea, right? Isn't that Antifa is just the idea? She indicated that no is himself a doxer. And he was wearing a skirt that was really high up. And so obviously he had it coming. Um, and uh, he said they, she said that he uploads publicly available mug shots of the people that get arrested. And so that makes him a doxer. Um, and uh, she said that the, since the U.S. has a, quote, unregulated Internet, Andy knows to take responsibility for the words he says on the Internet. And she says his conduct has not been pristine either. See, so by reporting on Antifa's violence, he has it coming in this unregulated Internet where he should have his, you know, First Amendment rights to speech and uh, free press. He should have them curtailed because he's, you know, reporting on Antifa, which sometimes gets a little violent. She also attacked No's credibility as a journalist, uh, but provided the jury with no evidence of any allegation that would have actually discredited him. She just said that he's a liar without giving any evidence of any lies that he told. Yeah, this works, apparently. In a court of law in Portland, this is what passes for justice. This is a compelling closing argument in Portland. You just call the person a liar. You say, I am a progressive. I am Antifa. He had it coming, and you win. 
Before closing statements, the judge informed the court that the trial's jurors have raised concerns themselves about, what do you think? Being doxxed themselves. Huh. By Andy No? Are they concerned that Andy No is going to dox them and then get them attacked? That would be weird because Andy No hasn't doxed anybody. And unless the whole jury is made up of Antifa violent thugs, then why would you think you're going to get doxed by Andy No? Maybe, now I'm just spitballing here, but maybe they're worried about getting doxed and attacked and targeted by Antifa. And maybe that's why they found the Antifa people not liable, so this way they would not anger Antifa. I know, like I'm just trying to connect these dots. They seem very, very far away, and by far away I mean like right on top of each other. Okay, Um, they said that the, the judge then enacted even stricter safety measures than they uh, than what had already been ordered before the trial. Curse you, Andy, no. Making the jurors feel unsafe. The judge explained to the jury that while the defendants may or may not have, or I'm sorry, Andy No's attorney said this, that while the two defendants may or may not have physically beaten No on the night in question, they can still be held liable for the battery assault and intentional infliction of emotional distress due to state law because they doxed him and they antagonized. And they were at the site of the beatings and they were saying, that's Andy No, get him. <laughs> right? Like, Yeah. And then they were saying things like, oh, I can't wait for you to leave this hotel where you're hiding because when you come out, like that's going to be the end of you. Like they're communicating threats. They're whipping up the mob. They're sending people after him. But, you know, justice was served, obviously, because the jurors were totally not afraid of being attacked themselves. Get the hell out of Portland. I don't know who's listening in Portland. I don't know if I'm big in Portland. I mean, I know I got podcast listeners in like India. I'm big in India. Although I think that might be VPN, but whatever. Um, Portland. I'll go check the numbers. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's Military Surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. I do have a bunch of messages on the bull that is roaming the streets as well as the the topic from the first hour where we were talking about the the poo planter. Oh, you know... I can't believe I messed this one up. It's the poo-poo planter. It's like the dish at the restaurants. The Right. Exactly. Ah, oh, gosh, what a missed marketing opportunity. Dang it. All right. So uh, we've got stuff on the bowl and the poo-poo planter. So we got uh, Jay, who said, I moved to Charlotte in 1994 
uh, with General Foods. My first set of business cards came with Charlotte SC in the address. This from a $400 million division. That's right. So in the first hour, we were talking about how Charlotte is now officially world class because we have the person who is uh, defecating on other people's property. And that is the sign that you have achieved world class status. So, uh, yay, us. And uh, and I talked about how, like, Charlotte, USA, the brand, they were trying this thing, like, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and they were like, this is the way everybody will know that Charlotte is in North Carolina with this new brand that says Charlotte, USA. I'm like, okay, that's actually not going to tell people it's in North Carolina. People already knew Charlotte was in the USA. But whatever. I didn't get paid tens of thousands of dollars for that campaign. Um, regarding the poo-poo planter. Bill says, so I guess for us old guys for whom nature calls about every 15 minutes, if I'm walking the dog and there's a there's no no trespassing sign posted, then I guess I'm good to go, too. What a relief. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. William says, I identify as a dog, so pooping by the park bench is now completely acceptable. And if you want me to clean up after myself, you should have put up a poop bag post. And all you restaurant owners and banks need to make sure you provide me with food and treats as I pass by your business as well. I think that's only fair. No, I think that's only fair. That's where we are, you know. Beth says, I just wanted to put this out there. As I have grown older, my goals and aspirations have gotten smaller. In recent years, I've often remarked to my friends and family that one of my main goals now is to make it through my life without seeing anybody defecate in public. And so far, so good. I made it through five years of living in San Francisco without witnessing such a trauma. And I am optimistic that I can continue to keep my record clean, so to speak, or I was, at least until I heard that story. Anyway, thanks for all you do. I'm enjoying the show. Thank you, Beth in Belmont. Appreciate you. It's from Stan. Uh... Nature pooping allocation is the subject line. Do I need to screen this, Stan? I think I might need to screen this one. Hang on. Two six-packs of shiner, 99-cent butane lighter, lucky strikes and a fifth of Patron. Ice down that igloo cooler, take a guess at all the doer. Feel a good one coming on Throw in Ray Wiley Hubbard Sing along to Redneck Mother Any blues I had before are gone Another working week is over No chance of staying sober Stan says, instead of individuals putting up their own no trespassing signs to stop nature pooping, why don't we use zoning to create areas where it's allowed and where it's not? That's a good question. Industrial use 2, NP. In a ragtop Mustang, followed us down to the lake and didn't have to think about that too long. Skinny dipping in the bright moonlight, situation couldn't be more right. I can feel a good 
Here's a good idea. Lance suggests that Terry, the caller, who usually makes up songs on Brett Winterbull's show, maybe he can come up with a ditty. Pooping in the street. To the tune of Dancing in the Street. In celebration of Charlotte's new Californication status. There you go. I like it. All right. Stick around. I'm in for Winterbull next hour. Otherwise, I'll see you on Monday. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>